It's so good to be gathering together as God's children, as God's family, and be worshipping. Thank you so much, Phil and Nadine, for joining us this morning. We are so blessed to be partnering with uh, CAP, and we're excited, so excited to see what God's going to do through this ministry. Um, This morning, we're continuing on with our uh, James series. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 5, verse 7. Uh, if you're new and, and visiting us this morning, I do want to extend the warm, uh, welcome that Dave extended already to us this morning. Uh, we would love to meet you if you are visiting us for the first time. We would love to help you to connect with us as a church. As you open up your Bibles uh, this morning, as we turn to God's Word, I, I just want to have a little honest conversation. And um, to be honest, this morning... Um, uh, Charlotte and I are coming pretty heartbroken. Uh, we had some um, heartbreaking news this weekend, and the reason I, I want to share with you is one to encourage you that we're trusting God, two to let you know about the thankfulness we feel for the love and support of this local church. But three, I want to I want to point you this morning to God's kindness. Because God, in His kindness, at this time for us, would have me preach this passage. And so I feel this morning as though I'm preaching this first and foremost to myself, but also to us as a local church. So why don't you read with me, uh, and I pray for us this morning. James, chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen of the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as you sent your disciples out, you gave them these words. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you're near to us this morning. Would it be you then 
who opens our eyes to change us as we hear from you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to commence by talking about a spiritual gift. A fruit of the Spirit that no one really wants. Not really. When was the last time you prayed and asked God for patience? Lord, do whatever it takes to make me patient. That sort of prayer makes most people nervous. And why? I mean, the answer is because we're worried about an answer to that sort of prayer. We know that if you pray for patience, you're likely to endure or have come upon you something that's going to require patience. And to be honest, that's not really what we want most of the time. Let me ask you a personal question. Would those closest to you consider you to be a patient person? Would those who know you best consider you to be patient? You know, I love what Alec Motier says about patience. He says, patience is the the self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. Patience, it's about self-restraint. It's about being able to be peaceable and having that peace and freedom from anxiety despite difficulties. It's, it's not being hastily and retaliating when something wrong or something difficult comes upon you. you know, the thing is, we live in this kind of interconnected culture of high-speed, kind of immediate returns, and patience in our culture isn't really a virtue anymore. You know, it's been replaced by a new virtue, and that new virtue is efficiency. Uh, I was just mindful of this uh, just this week, super-fast internet. You know, I remember the days when I used to want to watch a video uh, online and I used to start downloading in the morning so I could come back in the afternoon and watch a little two-minute video clip of, you know, my favorite comedy duo or something. Um, Multitasking, watching TV. Someone in my family uh, was recently describing how uh, someone who shall remain nameless was, you know, watching Doctor uh, Who on Netflix while also watching a different episode on an iPad while also, you know, reading a book on the side, multitasking, doing multiple things at once. We want efficiency. We want things quick. Uh, Cues at the shops and self-serve now because the idea of queuing for a few minutes to wait for some convenience seems uh, abhorrent to us. I mean, just yesterday, uh, given it was a Saturday, but we were waiting just two minutes for someone, probably an old person, having difficulty putting their ticket into the ticket machine to leave the car park just at Westfield. And they were trying to put it in and then pressing the button because they couldn't get it in. And all the cars are honking and honking. Come on, come on, what's taking you so long? We're a culture that no longer values patience. We're a culture that finds patience difficult at the best of times, but adds suffering into the mix, and we find it completely impossible. Now, our culture says that your personal happiness is your great life goal, 
and suffering is therefore the greatest setback to a fulfilled life that you can possibly face and so should be alleviated as soon as possible. And so, so many people in our culture live in fear of suffering and wish to avoid it at any cost. And the Bible has a very different perspective on suffering for Christians. In fact, according to the Bible, it's never a waste, but purposeful. In fact, it's the very example of Jesus whom we're called to follow, called to embrace suffering and not to avoid it. In fact, James has been teaching us right from the beginning of his letter that that God is at work in suffering. Just like he says in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count a little joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James has been teaching that God is at work in suffering, that suffering for Christians is is always purposeful. And now James turns to teach these Christians something perhaps even more radical. That rather than avoiding suffering, it's something that should be patiently endured. But how do you do that? How do you patiently endure suffering? And that's what this message is all about. If you're a note taker here this morning, I've entitled this message, Just Simply Patiently Endure. And really, the heart of this sermon is just answering that question. How do you patiently endure suffering? You know, I'm not really qualified to bring this message as someone who hasn't really suffered much, but God's Word is. And that's who I'm hoping we'll hear from this morning. And really, James gives us three encouragements to help us walk through suffering. And those three encouragements are really just the three points of this message. And point number one is this. Maintain upward vision. Maintain upward vision. Two weeks ago, we saw James address Christian traders who were sitting in church, nodding their head to Jesus being Lord, and yet were going out and making plans as though God were not the king of their lives. And so James says to them, and said to them two weeks ago, In James 4.13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. You know, a Christian way of looking at the world, according to James, means submitting everything to Jesus, being led by Him in everything. And so, in light of this, last week, uh, as Patrick so helpfully preached, James turn to address wealthy non-Christians for the benefit of Christians. These Christians, these wealthy non-Christians were oppressing oppressing Christians. They were defrauding them and and hoarding their wealth and, and exploiting Christians, even leading to their deaths. And so James wants to adjust the Christians in his church's vision of what it means to be wealthy. And so he he says Come now, in chapter 5, verse 1, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
You have condemned and murdered, verse 6, the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. His point is, don't envy wealthy people who oppress you. Don't, don't try and be like them. Judgment is coming. Make sure you don't fall into the same trap as them by being led astray by riches. And now James turns to try and equip these Christians to patiently endure their suffering at the hands of these rich landowners. And we know that because he says it four times in our passage. Four times he repeats that his point is for them to be patient. In verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers. Again, be patient about it. Again, verse 8, you also be patient. Again, verse 10, take as an example the suffering and patience, brothers, of the prophets. James wants to equip these believers to be patient in the midst of their trial. But how do you do that? How do you patiently endure suffering? Well, James wants them to see that the first step is to maintain upward vision. He wants to draw their focus away from their situation and he wants to lift it upwards. Just like he says in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Therefore, in light of the example of these rich non-Christians, in light of their coming destruction, Therefore, be patient. Brothers. Three times he addresses these Christians as brothers, indicating that he's shifted from talking to these non-Christians now to Christians. He returns to addressing these dear, beloved brothers. Be patient. But what does that even mean? Let's go back again to what Alec Motia said. Patience is the self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. It's the capacity to accept, to tolerate, to, to, to tolerate delay or problems or suffering without being annoyed or anxious. And his point is this, don't hastily lash out against these wealthy landowners. Don't be anxious or annoyed with them, those who are pressing you. Be patient. Have self-restraint. You know, it'd be so easy for these oppressed Christians to lash out against those oppressing them, to gossip about them and slander them, to be dishonest perhaps about their crops and withhold some of the profits, even to organize violent rebellion. But that's not what they did. Verse 6 of this chapter, James alludes their response. He says, the righteous person, they do not resist you. They weren't offering any resistance to this oppression. And the question that immediately comes to my mind is how? I mean, where are these people finding the strength to do this? How can they remain patient in the face of horrible oppression and injustice? And the answer is found again in that verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. 
the, the word he uses there is a secular word. It, it referred to at the time the arriving of royalty. You see, James believed that his big brother Jesus was king, more was king of kings. And he'd been present in Acts 1 during his ascension and he firmly believed that his king was coming back soon. That he had come and lived the perfect life. That he'd endured hostility, had been crucified, more raised and ascended and was coming back again. And according to James, the power for patience is found in the conviction that the coming of Jesus is at hand. That's where the power is. The power for patience in the midst of suffering lies in a conviction. A conviction that Jesus is coming again soon. And that's what I mean by upward vision. James is so convinced of this that he says it twice more. He says, Establish your hearts, verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says it again, verse 9, The judge is standing at the door. But how? How does the coming of Jesus make any difference to someone in suffering? How does it provide the power for patience? It's one word. Hope. It means hope. You know, it's the judge standing at the door. It's the idea of a judge that's about to enter in through the city gates. It's judgment is here. Just like he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door, literally doors or Gates, it's echoing the words again of his big brother. Just like Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, he said, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. Notice what he says. At the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. They will not pass away. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. You know, James here has in mind the words of his big brother, Jesus. Jesus who said that he was near at the very gates, standing at the door. Jesus who said that he was coming soon and that we should be prepared because we don't know when the hour is. Here's the thing. In Sydney, people balk at the idea of judgment and punishment. But Jesus was very clear. He's going to return to judge. And some will be thrown to the eternal fire. More, his return is going to be unexpected, like a, like a thief in the night. More still, Jesus taught that he's coming again soon. And no one knows, not even Christ himself knows, 
when that time is, and so we ought to be ready. But here again is where we run into problems. Jesus coming again soon? Judges standing at the door at the very gates? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Were James and Jesus wrong? And we can so easily begin to doubt that it will actually ever happen, let alone soon. And the result is we rarely think about the coming of Jesus. And the result is we begin to put our hope in things here and, and things like better health or having a better home or better holidays or a dream job or a better marriage or relationship or family. But the Apostle Peter anticipates this when he writes the following at the back end of his second letter. He says, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation, they'll say. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, hear this, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. According to the Apostle Peter, the Lord is coming back. He's coming to judge, and he's coming soon. The image that he paints is of like the skies being peeled back and all of the earth being exposed. And the only thing that's holding the Lord back from coming is not his lack of power, but his kindness and his mercy. You know, so many of our anxieties and worries are because we forget that he's coming. And so easily in the midst of difficulty, we can turn to things for comfort that will never really satisfy. We need something more than Netflix and holidays when difficulty strikes. We need hope. We need an upward gaze. And yet when he does come, it will change absolutely everything. Hear this from the book of Revelation 20. He says, John the Apostle, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And 
they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, that is hope. That is something you can build your life on. That is something that will never fail you. See, when we live with an upward gaze, look into the coming of Jesus, it changes everything. We can endure injustice at the hands of others. You know, when someone's wronged you, I mean, why do we, why do we always want to lash out in the first place? Well, it's usually taking matters into our own hands. It's like, if I don't fix this, no one will. How can Jesus say, turn the other cheek? Judgment is coming. And he saw it. Why would Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing? You see, when we see the judges coming, we can let go of the need for justice in this life. Why? Because judgment is coming. Justice is coming. And no earthly justice compares. More, we can endure suffering patiently, knowing that our pain won't last. You know, people usually despair and give up when they realize their situation won't change. That's why a needle hurts, but most people don't freak out because, I say most people, some do, occasionally I do, but they don't freak out because they know it won't last. The pain is but for a moment. It's pain that has no expiry date that's the most difficult. The coming of Christ is an absolute Game changer. Because it means that by definition, if you're a Christian, this pain must come to an end. The coming of Jesus means that if you're following him, all pain has an expiry date. And that's James's point. Jesus is coming soon, and so we need to maintain upward vision. Keep looking for him. And James gives us this powerful illustration to really help remind us of this. 
He says the following in the back end of verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You know, it was this phenomenon in Palestine at the time that they had early rains that were in late autumn or early winter, and these rains really provided the groundwater for germination and the early spring growth. And then they had late rains in late spring, which produced good summer harvest when they came. And you can kind of imagine this farmer waiting for rain, looking up to the sky, waiting for provision from God that would ensure that he could eat. It was a powerful and easily understood image because that's exactly what most people in this community would have done. And just like a farmer looking up and waiting for God's provision, where to look up? But we're searching the skies for something else. A coming king. Are you suffering? James wants to encourage you. How do you patiently endure suffering? Well, you look up. You maintain upward vision, but not just that. Two more points, and more briefly. Secondly, you stand firm in faith. Read with me verse 8. He says the following. He says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. It means to strengthen, build up your heart. It means to stand firm in faith and not to give in to doubt. Notice how it's a command. It's something that requires active attention. Stand firm in faith. But how does one do that? Well, primarily, in the context of this passage... We do it by looking up, by looking for the coming of Jesus. But James also wants to see and help us to see that in the midst of suffering, we face many temptations. The first temptation that James has shown us uh, in his letter is the temptation to panic and to ditch God. We read about that way back in verse 1. Uh, James says the following. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed in the wind. When suffering comes, we're to ask God for wisdom, the God who graciously gives it. But we face a temptation. And that is that rather from than asking God for wisdom, we can panic. What do I need to do to fix this situation? And in our panic, we can begin to look to worldly wisdom. We can begin to search the blogs and go on Google. We can begin to ask our colleagues and friends at work. But abandoning trust in this word and looking to the world for wisdom... That's the first temptation, to panic and ditch God. 
Secondly, we can be tempted to panic and not just ditch God, but to blame God. Just like James says in chapter 1, verse 13, he says the following. He says, he says this. He says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and himself tempts no one. In the midst of trial, we can begin to say, God is unfairly trialing me. He is tempting me to unbelief. He is responsible for this injustice that has befallen me. And James wants these Christians to see, he says in verse 17, that every good and perfect gift is constantly coming down from above. God is not the author of your temptation. He's the source of everything that we have that's good and good to enjoy. We can be tempted to ditch God and panic. We can be tempted to blame God. We can also be tempted, thirdly, to grumble and complain about others. Read with me verse 9. He says the following. He says this. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know, when the heat's on, we can start to accuse others. And we can begin to complain about them. We're not told why these Christians were grumbling against one another and what it was about. Maybe they're accusing each other of not working hard enough or not standing up against the landowners or blaming others for being in this difficult situation. Perhaps this is the origin of what James was talking about in regards to fights and quarrels that he mentioned back in chapter 4. But here's the truth. When our hope is put in others and not in God, what will quickly follow is disappointment. And when disappointment comes with people, our response is to grumble and complain. But notice what James says. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. You see, grumbling and complaining is more serious than you think. Whole churches can be divided by grumbling and complaining. And James is saying we risk judgment when we grumble and complain. Also, so often we're careless about our words because the truth is we think no one's listening. You know, C.J. Mahaney tells a story of a friend of his who was in an argument with his mother and just losing it, getting really frustrated and angry. And so he calls out and says, You fool! But what he didn't realize is his dad was standing right near the door behind and his dad walks in and says to his son, who's a fool? And his son pauses and wisely says in wisdom, I'm a fool. (laughs) It's so true though, isn't it? When the king is standing at the door, we speak differently, don't we? Panic and ditching God. Blaming God, grumbling and complaining, different fruits from the same root. Putting hope in something other than God. And that's why he says, behold the judge is standing at the door. When we see that Jesus is standing at the door about to enter, we're freed from panic and temptation to ditch God. We're freed from the temptation to blame God. He's about to rescue us. We're freed from grumbling and complaining. The king is coming. 
And James encourages us to stand firm. Establish your heart. Hold on to faith in the risen Jesus who's returning soon and don't give in. But thirdly and finally, not just maintain upward vision, not just stand firm in faith, but imitate the great examples of faith. See, James doesn't just leave it there. He actually gives us two beautiful examples to imitate. And the first example is of the prophets. He says this, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace... Oh, sorry. One more time. Verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You see, so many of the prophets suffered incredibly in fulfilling the task entrusted to them. Moses, difficulty upon difficulty, constant grumbling. They attempted to kill him. Jeremiah only had one follower and suffered at the hands of both his people and the pagan kings. Isaiah, Hebrews 11, tells us that he was sawn in half for his faith. John the Baptist was beheaded. What is it about the example of these prophets that James wants us to consider? He says, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. It's that they didn't give in. It's that they kept trusting God despite adversity. They kept speaking his word, even though people stood against them. And so we look at the prophets and we say they're blessed, they're favored by God because they hung in there and trusted him. And we so easily forget that we'll be blessed if we do the same. I love what Dan McCartney says. He says this in his commentary. James refers to these Old Testament examples of faith to show not how extraordinary people of extraordinary powers did marvels, but how ordinary people who shared the common human experience of suffering became extraordinary through their persevering faith in the face of adversity. Thus, the blessedness of the prophets involves not their happiness in their earthly lives, but their wholeness in relationship to God. Ordinary people became extraordinary by persevering through the things they suffered. And in suffering, we have the same example. Are you in the midst of suffering? Are you struggling to count it all joy and patiently endured? Consider the example of the prophets, how they patiently endured. Ordinary people becoming extraordinary through their persevering faith. But secondly, not just the example of the prophets, but the example of Job. He says this, he says, You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you're familiar with Job, you might be sitting there thinking, why does James use him as an example? I mean, Job wasn't at all patient with God. He was very impatient. In fact, Job accuses God of treating him unjustly and demands a fair trial. He arrogantly asks God to review his life and find him faultless. He charges God with a reckless lack of purpose in afflicting him with suffering. I mean, Job 13, 15, Job famously says, he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, but hear this, yet I will argue my ways to his face. It doesn't sound really like someone patiently enduring. No, the point is this. Job was relentless in his pursuit of God. 
He persevered in his desire for response from God and he believed that it was God and God alone who could help him in his suffering. And so he kept coming back to him time and time again. Are you walking through a trial? Consider the example of Job. How he relentlessly asked God for help in his suffering. But it doesn't just end there. James also wants you to see how God responded to Job. See what he says. He says, You have also seen the purpose of the Lord towards Job. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful in the way he treated Job. James doesn't just want us to imitate Job's example of perseverance, but to remember the way the Lord treated him. How the Lord in the end blessed him richly. You see, we can have an even greater confidence than Job that God will deal with us with mercy and compassion. And the reason is because we've seen his mercy and compassion in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, for many of us, we've lost and experienced the loss of friends, family members, or even of children. But he didn't lose his son. He gave him up. Such was his love such was the depth of his mercy and compassion that he gave him up for us to hang on that cross in our place that we might be called sons of the living God. Just like Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is merciful. God is compassionate. You know, This Jesus community that James was writing to were experiencing a severe trial, a trial of oppression and affliction, deprivation, leading to death, injustice. How could they possibly endure with patience? How can we patiently endure trials? James wants to help us. Maintain an upward vision. Keep looking up and waiting for his coming. Stand firm in faith. Keep trusting his promises. Imitate the examples of Job and the prophets. Their steadfastness and perseverance and the sweet smile of God. Would we patiently endure every trial to the glory of God? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, this morning for your tender mercy and compassion.
that you would give me, that you would give us such a beautiful word of encouragement. Help us be that kind of people. Help us to be a church with vision that is quick to move upwards, that stands firm on your promises, and that follows the patience and perseverance of your servants, the prophets, and Job. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.